Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come to you uh, to worship you. Um, we come to admit that we are all broken and in need of, of grace, of restoration. And so Lord, we ask that in this time as we open your word, that you would remove all barriers that stand in our way of, of seeing you, of hearing you, of trusting in you, of delighting in you. Lord, I ask that you would that you would bless the words of my mouth as I seek to share the truth of your word. May it bring comfort, may it bring truth, may it equip us to live our lives in a way that is honoring to you and encouraging to all of us. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, good to see you all, Christ community. My name is Reed Kappel, and I serve on the pastoral team here at the Leewood campus, and it is a joy to be here this morning and to open God's word with you all. Um, if you have been with us this summer, um, we have been going through the life of Moses through the book of Exodus. And if you haven't been with us this, this summer, we've still been going through the life of Moses through Exodus. So our sermon series aren't contingent upon your attendance. But, uh, but we, we've been going through the life of Moses and, and seeing how this, this story of Exodus, the story of Moses, uh, is a story that really is broken up into two parts. And we're going to look at that here in a little bit. But if, even if you've grown up in church or even if you haven't grown up in church, uh, we all know who Moses is. We're familiar with him to some degree. And, and it doesn't take a cultured film critic uh, to know that the life of Moses and his story is a, is a captivating story uh, and it's been captured in on the silver screen. Uh, in most recent years, we have Exodus, Gods and Kings with Christian Bale. Um, and then a few years back, uh, we have The Prince of Egypt, the animated feature film, which I liked that one. Uh, and then uh, the classic with your friend of mine, Chuck Heston, uh, The Ten Commandments, which just, he's terrifying. Look at that guy. Um, <laughs> Silver Fox. Uh, but, but like I said, you, you don't have to have grown up in church to know the story of Moses. We all pretty much know kind of the, the Red Sea, the plagues and all that stuff. Uh, but there's, there's one uh, theatrical depiction that some of you may be familiar with. It gives us a little bit of an insight into what it may have been like on the mountain as God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses. So let's peer in to this very important moment in history. So just, just in case you've never read the Bible, that's not how it happened, uh, just to kind of clarify, like, oh, I never knew that. Uh, but th we laugh at this, and it's funny, obviously, but there, there's some truth behind this, uh, because we tend to look at God's law, and laws in general, uh, sometimes in this kind of arbitrary way, that like really, okay, 15 commandments, 10, it doesn't matter, they're just laws, we only need to really live by like six of them, that's a passing grade, we're good. And, and we kind of look at them as just really unnecessary, and, and this is true of, of other laws. I mean, there are instances in life, I'm sure, where we have come across a rule, a policy, a regulation that we just kind of balk at. We're like, why is this here? If I were in charge, I wouldn't have done it this way. Whether it's a, a, a new tax policy that, that companies need to adhere to, or it's a way that your English essay needs to be formatted, you know, in certain margins. I had, I had a professor who actually would take a ruler and measure out my margins and mark them. Like, that was his obsession with like, with like red ink and it was just, yeah. And so we push back on these rules because we think we know better. We think we know better. And, and also there's this kind of, this issue that I think plagues all of humanity is that we think that really the path to the good life is lived by us being in control of our fate, by us being the ones who determine what is right and what is wrong. And we think that in order to 
find this good life, we have to be free of any kind of overbearing rules and authoritative figures, and that we can control our own destiny. But there's a bit of an irony with this, because we, we see that there's actually something kind of backwards, that the freer we are to live for ourselves, we actually find ourselves more enslaved to our desires, and end up making worse decisions by our own efforts. On the flip side, when we live in accordance with God's design for life, submitting to his gracious, loving authority, we actually find a freedom that we couldn't have found pursuing life in accordance with our desires. Now, now some of you are on board with that, like, yeah, I get that. Some of you don't buy this. And so I just thought I'd share a a contemporary example of this uh, that might tie in here, and that is of UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Now, this is a form of, some of you are just like, where is he going with this? Uh, So the octagon uh, uh, is uh, basically, if you've ever watched UFC, it's not a form of entertainment I'm into, mainly because I'm not interested in things that I know I would dominate at, you know? But, but the UFC, if you're, if you're not familiar with it, it's an octagon cage fight between two humans. And, and when it started, there were no rules. That was kind of its motto, no rules. You had two guys going at each other fighting until one guy left. And, and there was some interest and the fan base grew and it was picked up by some cable syndicates. But after a, a little bit of time, people started losing interest. And lawsuits started to develop. And, and, and cable companies stopped showing UFC fights. And, t- and tapes and DVDs w- weren't being uh, published and printed and sent out. And so what happened is the, the UFC had a new owner, Dana White, who came in and started implementing rules. So they kind of did away with the whole no rules policy and impl- implemented rules like, like uh, gloves and like weight classes. Like there, used, there was a fight, there was like a 400 pound sumo wrestler and a 130 pound kickboxer. And like that was a match, it was just interesting. And so they implemented these rules, like no biting, no headbutts, no groin shots, like just kindergarten rules basically. And the, the implementation of these rules brought with it some structure, some order to the point that the fan base started to grow. And cable companies started picking up and showing UFC fights. Lawsuits stopped. And it has now grown into this multi-billion dollar sport. The point of this is that if UFC cage fighters need rules, you and I need rules in order to flourish in life. Now, obviously, the the analogy breaks down to some degree. but, But I want us to see the irony that in living free of rules, the UFC actually started to crumble. And lawsuits increased. Fan base decreased. But once rules were implemented, the fan base increased and and the viewership increased. And so what I want us to see is this irony, this understanding of how the law of God, and laws in general, but specifically the law of God and freedom are tied together. And we're going to see this morning the irony of God's freedom, sorry, of our freedom and God's law by looking at the story of Moses in the book of Exodus. That's not important. Don't worry about it. And so we're going to look at chapters 19, uh, chapters 19 and 20. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there. And what we're going to see is this irony of, of our freedom in God's law. And we're going to see that through three things, the giving of the law, the purpose of the law, and the fulfilling of the law. Those three things, the giving of the law, the purpose of the law, and the fulfilling of the law. First is the giving of the law. Now, before we jump into that, I just want to kind of set the context of where we are. So Exodus 19 
it actually marks a very pivotal point in the story of Exodus. Uh, the book is kind of divided up into two uh, parts. Not a formal divide, but, but the first 18 chapters are basically focusing on the plight of Israel, that they're in slavery, God delivers them out of the hands of Pharaoh um, and into the promised land. And so now, uh, or into the, into the wilderness and that journey. In Exodus 19, we come to Mount Sinai where God delivers his law to the people of God through Moses. And, and, and so this is kind of the shift. And, and one commentator refers to Exodus 19 as the center of gravity, the center of gravity, not just of Exodus, but of the entire Pentateuch, which is the, the first five books of the Bible. And so what I want us to see is that this is a very important section of scripture that is kind of pointing into us into a new direction. But I want to be careful that we don't look at them as, as two separate stories because God's deliverance of Israel out of slavery is tied to his covenant that he makes with Moses and Israel and the giving of his law. They are tied together. And what we see in this first 18 uh, chapters is this pattern of God delivering and providing for his people and then his people responding by whining and worrying. You have them, I mean, God brings them out of slavery and they get to the Red Sea and then they start freaking out. Like, well, now we're gonna die. The Egyptians are coming after us. And so God provides. He splits the sea, they walk through and they're delivered. But then on the other side, they start wandering through and they don't have water and they complain about that. And the only water they do have is bitter. So God makes the, the water sweet and he provides again. But then they start complaining that they don't have food and they start reminiscing about how they used to eat around the meat pots when they were in slaves in Egypt. I was like, really, you're reminiscing about the food when you were a slave in Egypt? Like, yeah, it was so good. And it'd be like me saying, like, remember the chicken patties we ate in third grade? I want to go back to third grade. Nobody wants to go back to third grade. It's a true fact. But the idea is that they're complaining about food. God provides. This goes on and on. God provides. His people complain. This leads us to Exodus 19, the center of gravity of the Pentateuch. And what we see is that, is that this, this point in Exodus 19 is actually something that God promised in Exodus 3 when God meets Moses for the first time and reveals, or rather when Moses meets God for the first time and reveals his plan. In chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, God points to what happens in Exodus 19. He says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, if you've read Exodus 3, the, the mountain is referred to Mount Horeb. And here's a picture of Mount Horeb. And so there it is, lovely. There's a little geography lesson for you. But what's interesting is like, wait a minute, I thought they're on Mount Sinai. How does that work? It's the same mountain. The name of uh, the mountain is called Horeb in, in Exodus 3, and it's referred to as Sinai in 19. Some theologians say that, that it's one side of the mountain is called Horeb, one side is Sinai. But this is the mountain of God, the mountain of Yahweh, where he reveals himself. It's where this whole rescue mission began with God revealing to Moses his plan to deliver his people out of slavery and to bring them back to this mountain that he might fulfill his covenant with his people. So that's kind of where we are. Moses has brought them back to where it all began on Mount Sinai. And now they arrive at Mount Sinai, and it says that they got here about three new moons uh, since they left Egypt, which is about seven weeks, just to kind of give a time frame. So they come to the mountain, and God says to Moses, the first thing he says, he says, remind the people of Israel, remind them of who I am and what I've done. 
Remind them that I am the God who has saved them and rescued them from slavery out of Egypt. So God does this, or so Moses does this. And this is important because he wants to make sure that as he begins this covenant relationship and as he gives the law, he wants them to see the order of this, which we'll come to in a second. So God instructs the people or reminds the people and then God gives Moses instructions. And he says, tell the people of Israel to wash their garments and to prepare for my presence coming to this mountain in three days. So he says, wash all your clothes. And then he says to to set up some kind of boundary. We don't know if it's a a physical fence of some kind, but but it says to separate yourselves from the mountain. Do not go near, do not touch it, or you will die. And so for these three days of preparation, they're washing their clothes, they're building fences of some kind, some kind of boundary. But then there's this kind of interesting rule, and then it says, and do not go near a woman. You know, it's just like, well, that's weird. Like, is this where cooties came from in the first place? And we don't know. And uh, it's kind of an interesting f- reference. But the idea, what I think it's referencing, is this idea of abstaining from, from sexual activity. And it's not to say that women are unclean or filthy and that sex is unclean or filthy, but it's just this idea of consecrating yourself. This idea of cleaning your clothes is kind of the symbol of being pure and holy as you enter into the holiness of God's presence. And this idea of abstaining from sex is this idea of self-sacrifice as we enter into a place of worshiping God. It is not that sex or women are dirty, just to be clear on that. Then the third day comes and God descends on Sinai and it says that he descends in fire. And it is such an amazing sight that starts to fill the base of the mountain everywhere around with smoke. And the people of Israel are terrified. And, and there's just, you know, just in reading this, my, my kind of weird comical mind started going this direction. It's like, this is just a funny, just think about this for a second. God has asked Israel to spend two days washing their clothes. And then he comes in fire and fills the place with smoke. And now they all smell like smoke. I mean, I'm sure like most of them are freaking out. One guy had to be like, I just washed this. Come on, you know. <laughs> I don't know if that's what happened, but, but, but think about it. I mean, it, it was a miracle to have hundreds of thousands of Israelites washing their clothes in the middle of a desert. That's a miracle. We don't reference that one. There's not a flannel graph for that, but that's an amazing miracle. How do they wash their clothes in the middle of a desert? I don't know. And so, so God descends on Sinai in fire, filling this place with smoke. And, and the, the picture here is that God is coming down to indicate, to illustrate, to show his presence with his people. All of these sights and sounds, there's thunder and the sounds of trumpet, fire and smoke. All of these sights and sounds are to show and indicate God is present with his people. But at the same time, something very funny happens. Is that as God is trying to say, I'm here, I am present with you, you are my treasured possession, the people of Israel are terrified and they stand back and they keep their distance And they're just like, Moses, how about you go talk to God? You know, they're kind of freaked out. And so while at the same time we see God wanting to be with his people, we see his people being afraid of being near him, which will come back to to be relevant here in a little bit. But I want us to see what is taking place as God descends upon the mountain. And so then we see uh, that, like I said, this interesting thing that like they want to be, God wants to be near them, but they don't. And then Moses is invited up onto the mountain. And it is on this mountain where God reveals these 10 words, the 10 commandments. 
And, and just, just to pause for a second, this is not going to be a sermon on the Ten Commandments, okay? So you can relax, like, okay, good, because uh, I forgot them all. But um, it's not going to be a message on the sermon uh, or on, on the Ten Commandments. If you're sitting by your neighbor who has an iPad and you're kind of like, I wish I had one, don't worry about it. I mean, that's still a commandment. You should not, you know, cover your neighbor's iPad but, or doc, donkey or oxen or whatever. But, but the point of this message is to see the law of God as and understand why it exists. What is the purpose of God's law and how does it fit in the full narrative of Scripture. And, and before we jump into these purposes, I just wanted to highlight one more kind of element of this irony in the relationship between our desire to find freedom and the laws of God. Because like I said, at face value, we tend to say freedom comes from being freed of, of obligations and free of, of authorities over us. And what I want us to see is that if, you, if you're a person who would view the Bible primarily through the lens of it's just a bunch of antiquated rules that have no relevance anymore or they're actually, they're actually something that would prohibit humanity from progressing and, and as a result you see God as kind of this divine cosmic killjoy, I totally understand why people have that view. And if that were the Bible and if that were the view of God, then most, then I would agree that that is not worth reading and embracing and, and living uh, in accordance with. But what I want us to see is that even if that were true, even if the Bible were just a bunch of rules and God was just this cosmic cop and we reject that idea of living in accordance with his rules, my question to you would be this. If you're living in accordance with your own laws, how well do you even live in accordance with your own standards? If God is not your authority and you are, do you even match up to your own expectations of morality and ethics? And there's this great illustration, Pastor Andrew referenced this a few weeks back, and it's an illustration I believe Francis Schaeffer uh, came up with, and, and Francis Schaeffer said this, he says, imagine every human being is born with an invisible tape recorder around their neck, and the recorder turns on any time you make a moral judgment towards someone else. So whenever you make a statement that starts with you should or you shouldn't, the recorder turns on. And then imagine at the end of your life, you're standing before God and he comes to you and says, welcome to judgment day, we're running a special, every millionth soul gets to be judged by their own standards. And so the tape recorder is played. And you hear all of the times throughout your life when you said to others, you should do this, you shouldn't do that, and you are then judged by that and that alone. And what we all are realizing in this moment is that we wouldn't even pass our own standards. And I want us to see this to show that we all deep down know we don't match up. We all deep down know that, that we don't match up to the rules of, of religion, of society, of God, of our parents, even of ourselves. And that results in this sense of guilt and shame and that tends to push us down one path or the other, one path of religion, this idea of I need to be good enough, I need to expend all this moral energy to get to a place where I'm good enough before God. Or this other side of saying, forget rules, that's a waste of time, I am my own king, I will choose to live how I want. Neither of these paths lead to freedom. They both enslave us. And what we see is the irony that when we seek to live free of our own rules and standards and free of anybody else's, we're actually more enslaved. But the more we submit ourselves to the gracious authority of God, the more freedom we find. That is the irony of God's law. Now to understand, I think, this, this universal tension that we all face, 
with, with God's law and freedom, I think it's important for us to see the purposes of God's law. What is its purpose? Is it just a bunch of rules for us to comply with and follow? And so I want to take some time just to highlight a few of the purposes of why God has given us his law. And the first uh, is this, and, and it kind of, I'll address it by looking at a, a common misunderstanding. We tend to look at the law, God's laws, primarily from the standpoint of they exist to prevent and prohibit evil. And that's true, but there's this other side to it that we neglect and we don't see, is that God's law also exists to preserve and protect the good of life. It is not just to prohibit and prevent evil, it is to promote and preserve good. And when we understand that it changes, it kind of widens our perspective of why God has given us his law. It's not just to keep us in line or to keep us from fun, but it is given to us for our good and for the good of others. This is why at the end of of Exodus 20, after God has given the Ten Commandments, we see kind of the motive behind this in verse 20. It says, Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. God's laws are given to us, yes, to prohibit and prevent evil in the world and in our own lives, but also to preserve and promote good. And, and, and this is something that we need to understand, and, and one way to illustrate it would be like this. We tend to look at God's laws uh, to be more similar to handcuffs instead of fences. Handcuffs confine us, they restrict us, they limit us, but fences are built in order to protect in order to allow you to enjoy your property. And so just recently, I built a fence in our backyard and we did this because, you know, we didn't want our girls running around in like the neighborhood and falling into the creek and getting bit by snapping turtles and stuff like that, which I almost ran over one with my lawnmower the other day. That would have been not pretty for, I don't know for who, but no one actually. And so uh, we we put in this this fence to, to kind of protect us and to preserve our backyard. And we don't see God's law in that way. The fence is there to promote and preserve the good. If you think of it another way, if you think of a fireplace, a fire is good when it's in a fireplace. It has boundaries and you can enjoy it. When it's fire is in a fire not place, it's not good. You know, fire, fire to campfire, with s'mores, good. Fire on your arm, it's not good. That's not good. Don't wave it because you can't wave firearms in the public. <laughs> I had to. Um, but the idea... The idea is that we we tend to look at boundaries as being restricting, but they're actually for our good, and that is the motive behind God's law. But there's this other element as well that God's law is given, and this is probably the most important one here in, in Exodus 19, the law is given in the context of a covenant relationship. This is exactly what God is trying to tell Moses in verses four through six in chapter 19. He says, you yourselves, God is telling Moses to declare this to Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel." What we see here is that God has rescued his people from slavery and he is now making a covenant with them and he is giving them his law as a response to that covenant and we have to see that it happens after 
their rescue from slavery, not before. And that order is very important for us to understand. The giving of the law is not this requirement of now you must do this, but it is more of a this is how you can respond to me for what I've done for you. Let me illustrate it this way. We need to see God's law less like a marriage license and more like wedding vows. A marriage license is, is just this kind of formal contract. You know, you, you, you sign it and you can now change, your, you know, all this information. You have tax benefits and all this stuff. But that's not, that's not beautiful and meaningful. No one is framing their marriage license. No one sends that to their spouse on their 10-year anniversary. Like, I framed our marriage license. Like, that's great. You know, like that's not a beautiful thing. But the vows, the vows are these personal expressions of devotion, commitment, and love That is how we should view God's law, that it is not this, okay, I guess I need to do this now, but it is in response of what you have done for me, I want to give you this, I I want to live in accordance with your design for life. In in commenting on this very text, Tom Schreiner, a theologian, says this. He says, the giving of the law was not the basis upon which the Lord entered into covenant with Israel. The giving of the law followed, and it does not precede God's great redemption of Israel from Egypt. The call to obey the Lord functions as a response to the Lord saving his people from Egypt. To fully understand the purpose of the law and how it fits into this covenant relationship, we have to see that it's less about rules that must be followed and more about a relationship that has been formed. That's what this is pointing to. And and a better way to understand it is to kind of see see it in the context of the entire story of Exodus. And the story of Exodus always follows this pattern. God God liberates and then gives his law. God delivers and then gives his deeds. God rescues and then gives rules. It is always that pattern. And it is important because what we see is that this is how God deals with his people. It is not do these things and then I will rescue you, but it is I have rescued you and now in response of this gracious gift I have done and given to you, respond in this way. This is the picture of the law and the covenant in Exodus 19. And this is really the whole story of Exodus. This is why when when God is giving the Ten Commandments, he starts by reminding them of his deliverance. In chapter 20, verses one through three, God says, he spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Why should we have no other gods before God? Because he is the one who has delivered us. He is the one who has rescued us. It is on that basis, because of that truth, that the 10 commandments are given. But one other thing that we should be very careful not to miss is that the commandments were given not just for the good of Israel and not just to show their relationship to God, but they were given for the good of all people. This is the picture that God has in mind. He's not just creating this little secluded club. He is giving the law to Israel so that they might be a blessing to the nations. This has been God's plan all along. It was his promise to Abraham. From you, I will bless all the nations. He's building off of that promise to this covenant with Moses and Israel saying, when you live in accordance with my law, you will be a blessing to the nations. The law is given not to effectually show that Israel is God's people, but to effectively be his blessing to the nations. That's why the law is given. Yes, for their good, but for the good of all people. 
And, and, and in commenting on this as well, Douglas Stewart in his commentary on Exodus says this very well. He says, they were not to be a people unto themselves, referring to, to Israel. They were not to be a people unto themselves enjoying their special relationship with God and paying no attention to the rest of the world. Rather, they were to represent him to the rest of the world and attempt to bring the rest of the world to him. God's vision here is not to make just this kind of separate private people, but he blesses Israel, enters into a covenant relationship with them, gives them the law so that others might know and see the goodness of God and the life that he invites them into. And this is the picture of what the church is. To tie this into the whole narrative of scripture, you know, this isn't just one story, this isn't just one book, Exodus, it ties in and fits into the whole narrative of scripture. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter uses this exact same language in talking about the church, that the church exists. In, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, we see, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then skipping down to verse 11 or 12, it says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. God's vision here of giving the law is not just for our good, but it's for the good of all people. So that when we live in accordance with it, it does not just improve and and benefit us, but it is a way of displaying God's goodness to the world. And this is yet another way in which we see that the union of God's glory and the good of man brought together in the giving of the law. Now there's a lot more that we could say about the law. We, could, we can get into a lot more detail, but, but I want to kind of bring us to this last point. And, and that's probably one of the most important purposes of the law, and which is our last point, and that is the fulfilling of the law. That the law was given, yes, for our good, and yes, to display the character and nature of God, and yes, to show the covenant relationship and how we should respond to God's grace but we also see that the law was expected to be fulfilled, followed perfectly, completely. You see, God's law that he gives to his people is a fail, is a pass-fail exam. It's a, it's a pass-fail exam, meaning that there's no 60%, 70%, 80%. God's expectation of standards of holiness that he has set are very high. That's what the law reveals. It reveals his holiness, And God is essentially saying this, if you want to be holy, be holy as I am holy, what the scriptures say, this is the standard. And so there's a sense in which the law, as good as it is, as beautiful as it is, actually brings a message of condemnation because it shows us how far we are from meeting God's standards of holiness in order to approach him in relationship. In in, in writing on this, Martin Luther, who's who's written so much on, on the relationship of the law and the gospel, he, he actually talks about to understand the whole Bible storyline, you have to understand the law and how it fits with the gospel. And we tend to look at the Bible like the Old Testament is when God was angry and then he became a Christian and then sent Jesus and then loved us all. But we have to dispel and push away against that simplistic way of reading the Bible and see that God's law is given for a purpose. And that purpose is to be fulfilled. And the bad news is that we can't fulfill it. And this is what Luther says. It is true that the law is the most excellent of all things in the world. Yet it is not able to quiet a troubled conscience, but it makes our terrors worse and drives us to desperation. 
The law is a beautiful thing as a response to God, but it is a burdensome and terrifying thing as a requirement to earn his love and acceptance. The law actually shows us our brokenness. And I've shared this illustration before, but the law serves and functions like an x-ray, that it reveals our brokenness, but it does nothing to heal our brokenness. It just shows you, you have brokenness within you and something must be done. An x-ray does nothing to mend your bones. It simply shows you how broken you are on the inside. And that's kind of what the law is doing for us. And this is actually something that, that Jesus affirms and points to in his teaching on another mountain, on the Sermon on the Mount. He shows that the law is not a pathway to perfection. It is actually an indictment on our inadequacy. It shows us that we don't match up. The Sermon on the Mount we read and like, oh, it's such a great message of good teaching about how to live life as a Christian, and that's true. But when you really understand it, Jesus is basically saying, you thought Moses was tough? You thought the law of Moses was tough? It's way worse than you thought. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. I say to you, if you've looked upon a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. The Sermon on the Mount serves as a magnifying glass to the law. And it helps us see the fine print, so to speak, that we are actually way worse off than what we realized. But here's the question that still kind of stands in our heart, is that, is that Mount Sinai is, and, and kind of the Sermon on the Mount, both kind of paint a bleak picture for humanity if this is our only chance of achieving holiness before God. But the Bible also talks about another mount, Mount Zion, which is this metaphor, this picture of the new heavens and the new earth, this picture of what one day will be when all tears will be wiped away, all pain will be forgotten, every sad thing will be turned untrue. This is the picture of Mount Zion. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is, how on earth do we go from Mount Sinai, a message of kind of condemnation, we don't match up, to Mount Zion, which is this message of you are free, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. How do we go from Sinai to Zion, from this mount to this mount. We get there through another mount, the Mount of Calvary. And we have to understand how all this starts to fit together. You, some of you know where I'm going here. It's like, it's starting to see how this story in Exodus is not just about 10 commandments that should be placed in front of courthouses. This is a story of how God is unfolding his plan of restoration and redemption. He knows what he is doing. And what we see is that the only way we get from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion is through the Mount of Calvary. You see, when God came down upon the mountain of Sinai, he came in the form of fire, and it resulted in fear and trepidation, and he said, if you come and touch this mountain, if you draw near, you will die. But God later comes down on another mountain and says almost the opposite and says, unless you come near, to this mountain you will die. You must draw near now. We have to understand the good news of Calvary and drawing near to it and benefiting from the blessings of Christ and his death on the cross for us, they are only fully understood until we see how condemned and how broken we are in light of the message of Mount Sinai. We have to see this. And one of the most amazing things about this message is that, yes, God makes holy demands and very high demands for us, but the good news of the gospel is that the same God that makes the demands meets the demands. That he is the one who says, you can't be good enough, but here's the beautiful news. 
I was good enough. I am good enough for you in the person of my son. And probably one of my favorite recent summations of the gospel narrative is this, that the lawmaker became the law keeper to save us, the lawbreakers. I mean, that just, that just rings. It, just, it, it ties it all together. The lawmaker, God, who says, this is my law. This is how you have to match up. He became the law keeper and said, this is how you match up. I'm doing it for you so that you will not have to die a lawbreaker. That is the good news of the gospel. The reason we can now approach God without fear of death is because at the cross, the only thing that had to fear was death itself. And when we understand that truth, the law doesn't become this burdensome thing that we must adhere to and follow perfectly. It becomes something that we can now embrace and live without fear of condemnation when we don't match up to it. It truly is God's pathway to live in the good life. And we don't have to fear failing God's standard of holiness. And this is what we heard in our, in our responsive reading in Hebrews 12. The author of Hebrews shows us that Mount Sinai is pointing to Mount Zion and the way to get there is through the Mount of Crucifixion. On the Mount of Crucifixion is where fountains flow deep and wide. Of the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. It's starting to come together. We start to see the truth of the fact that the lawmaker became the law keeper to die for us, the lawbreakers. And this message, I know this message is a message that many of us believe to be true, but I'm sure it's also a message that some of us want to be true, but aren't there yet. And I, I will just say on the confidence of God's word, it is, it is a message that is true. And the better news about it is that it is a message that is true for those who come to trust and see that the lawmaker became the lawkeeper to save us, the lawbreakers. The good news of the gospel is that we can now look at our good deeds and, and, and feel that we don't have to perform them in order to earn God's approval. But we can also look at our corrupt deeds without fear of condemnation because the curse has been removed. The demands of Sinai have been met at the Mount of Calvary, and because of that, we have access and entrance into the new heavens and new earth of Mount Zion. But the last thing that I want us to also see, just as God gave his law for not only our good, but for the good of others, some of us need to hear not just that God has come to save us from something, he has come to save us for something as well. So some of us in this room, we need to hear that first part, that God has come to save me from something. He has come to save you from sin and from death. And that when we come to embrace the truth of the lawmaker becoming the lawkeeper to save us, the lawbreakers, we find the freedom that our heart has been longing for. But for those that have come to believe that and trust that, we must see as well that the law was given and the gospel was sent, proclaimed to us, not just for our good, but for the good of all people. This is the message of the gospel that applies to each and every one of us. The message that shows that the law was fulfilled, the penalty was paid, and the best is yet to come. Let us pray. Father in heaven, again we come to you because first you have come to us.
Lord, I ask that you would reveal to us the weightiness of your law, that you would show us its goodness and how it does point us to a good life if we live in accordance with it. But Lord, help us to also see its demands and how we cannot match up. But Lord, don't let us stay there long. Help us to see the beautiful word that that although we don't match up, you have matched up for us. May we understand the beauty and the freedom that comes from knowing that you have lived the life that we couldn't live, that you have died the death that we should have died, and you rose over the grave that was marked for us. May that truth resonate in our hearts either for the first time or for the 500th time. May it bless us, may it inspire us, may it transform our very lives. We pray this all in Christ's name, amen.